Good morning again. Well, let me uh, just welcome you again to Tomball Bible Church. If you are uh, visiting with us today, my name is Carl Carr, and I'm one of the elders here at TBC, and I'm going to be uh, bringing you uh, this morning's uh, teachings. <clears throat> um, I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last few months, we've got new mics that mount on your ear and come around here, and uh, I'm not wearing it this morning because our sound guy said I had a freak ear, so... And I, I won't say his name, Marshall, but <laughs> but uh, so we had to go to this kind of mic, uh, and I don't feel real confident because of that. But <clears throat> so it's our practice here at, at TBC uh, for elders and other members of our leadership team to deliver some of those Sunday morning teachings, and of course our senior pastor Skeet Alvardson uh, delivers the rest of the teachings. Uh, in all seriousness, we, we desire as elders and pastors to always be before you in, in just all humility, sharing our heart and our vision as we provide spiritual leadership to the body. So we return uh, to our teaching series from the book of First and Second Peter this morning, and it's a series that we've titled uh, Stand Firm. And this morning, we're going to examine a real small section of Scripture. It's Second Peter chapter 3. And we're going to look at uh, verses 10 uh, through 13. Uh, And what we're going to do, we're going to explore what this passage has to say about perseverance in view of the coming kingdom. Now, just to set the context for our study this morning, I want you to allow me to remind you that in the first two chapters in 2 Peter, Peter has used this letter to remind the church of Christ's command and to warn them about the challenges that are inevitably going to come if they really commit to following Christ. Then, having done this, Peter then uses the first ten chapters of chapter, I'm sorry, the first ten verses of chapter three to then describe the earth's end. And, and this seems odd at first and, and out of place, but you will notice from today's passage that what follows this description of, a, of this sudden, unexpected, and total destruction of the world, uh, that Peter gets to the real point of chapter 3. And, and that's actually found in today's uh, focal passages for the lesson today. So, to begin our study uh, this morning, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3. And we're going to begin in verse 10. And I'm going to be uh, reading from the uh, ESV, and it's going to be on the screen uh, as well. And uh, also on the back of your bulletin is a place for you to take notes because we're going to go through some points that I want to build on, and it may be helpful to write those down. So beginning in verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 11 says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So from this really theologically rich passage, I'd like to kind of set a foundation for this morning's teaching by highlighting three points that Peter makes 
from this passage that I believe are really key to making applications uh, from this passage. So, point number one. In verse 10, this is the obvious one, Peter says that everything on this planet will one day be destroyed. And he reiterates this point from verse 10 when he says in verse 11 that all these things are thus to be dissolved. Or to put it another way, he says, since everything's going to be destroyed this way. Well, how does this destruction come about? Well, if you see verse 10, it tells us that this destruction will be sudden and unexpected when it happens. I like the way Skeet has described in the last couple of weeks. He says that for a long time, things will be as they've always been, and then they won't be. <laughs> so what will be destroyed? Well, everything includes 401ks. It includes houses. It includes cars, companies. And anything else that you can think of one day will simply vanish and be consumed by fire. And it's not just things that will be destroyed, but also an entire way of life will be consumed as well. So, point number one is, one day everything will be destroyed. Point number two. Pointer Peter then points out that because of the believer's knowledge of this coming destruction we should approach life differently. If we know point one, then we should approach life differently. And I want you to notice also from this passage that we read that it's both individual and collective in its address. In other words, we as individuals should approach life differently, but we as the church should approach things differently as well. Just as a way of uh, illustration... How many of you here this morning have ever used or been in a temporary possession of a rental car? So quite a few of us have. If you've ever driven a rental car, you know that your relationship with a rental car is somewhat different than the relationship you have with your own car, right? So some of you are smiling. And so some of us take great pleasure in how bad we are to our rental cars, but... If I am in a rental car, at the very least, I'm much less vigilant to miss potholes. I'm much less concerned if the car gets dirty or or muddy. Uh, I'm not at all concerned if this car is overdue for an oil change, right? And even when I pick my rental car, I'm much less concerned about the color of the car than I would be if I was buying the car. And I for sure will not take my rental car to the car wash. After all, I just... I'm just going to have it for a couple of weeks, right? And then I'm going to have to give it back. I remember a rental car that we had. It was a Buick LeSabre. It was burgundy with a tan cloth uh, interior. And for reasons I never understood, the back seat was black. But if I was buying this car, this would be of great concern, right? It was a rental car, so I said, <laughs> and we drove it anyway. But why are we this way with a rental car? Well, the answers are kind of obvious. We're this way with a rental car because it's temporary, right? Because in the grand scheme of things, a rental car is simply a tool, right? It's a means to an end. And in the great scheme of things as well, what your rental car looks like doesn't really reflect much upon you. So you don't care. Well, likewise, what Peter's telling us this morning is this world is just a rental He points out in this passage that the things of this world are are very temporary when compared to eternity. 
And if we believe verse 10, then we will approach life very differently. And, and as a result, the focus of the body of Christ should be very different from the rest of the world as well. By reminding us of the outcome of the earth, Peter intends to call us back to living out the commands of Christ. And more importantly, to call us away from a life spent solely focused on the pursuits of this world. So we have two points so far. Point one was everything will be destroyed. Point two was is because of point one, we should approach life differently. Then point three. In verse 12 and 13, Peter points out exactly how we live from a different perspective. And it may not be what you think it is. He says that we live looking forward to Christ's return. So you see this dynamic that should exist in all believers whereby we realize that this life is incredibly temporary in view of eternity. And we live looking forward to and really yearning for Christ's return. Peter says here that the life of every believer should be a life that's colored in every aspect by this eager anticipation of our Lord's return. So before we proceed any further into this passage, having made those three points, um, I want you to look at just a few more verses with me because I think they, they illustrate that this living with an eager anticipation of Christ's return that's described by Peter, it's actually a core ethic of Christianity. Uh, so let's start by uh, turning back in your Bible one book to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 3 through 7. So 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 7. Beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, and get this, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7 says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's the point here? The point is that even though we struggle now, what we rejoice over is our salvation that's going to occur when Christ comes. Our redemption comes when Christ comes. That's what we're looking forward to. Now turn back with me, way back in the book, back of your Bible, to the book of Jude, the last book before Revelations. And I want you to look at verses 20 and verse 21. So verse 20 and 21 in the book of Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So likewise, we are waiting for Christ's mercy to be revealed at his return. Let's drill down just a little bit further about this eager anticipation of Christ's return. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. So 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. 
At the very end of his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he says, our Lord, come. Turn with me back to the book of Matthew and go to chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. In verse 9 and 10, you'll recognize this as what we call the Lord's Prayer. Verses 9, it says... Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now go all the way back to the back of your Bible once more. Revelations chapter 22. We're going to look at verse 20. John, who just wrote this apocryphal passage uh, at the very end of Revelations... He says, in verse 20, chapter 22, he says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. If you look at these verses that we just examined, at the verbs that these translations originate from, you would see that the intensity of these verbs just literally jumps off the pages when you read them. And you read, Our Lord, come. You read, Your kingdom, come. And finally, come, Lord Jesus. Then you get this flavor that near to the heart of the believers in the early church was this eager anticipation and a real yearning for Christ's return that literally colored every aspect of their lives. Unfortunately, I think for the church today that somewhere lost in this misguided message of the American church, we seem to have lost some of this core aspect of the Christian life whereby we live each day in eager anticipation of Christ's return. Why is it that we have, for the most part, lost this yearning for Christ's return? I think for for some of us, we've lost this yearning because of a heart issue. Turn with me for just a moment, and I want you to look in Luke chapter 14. We're going to read verses 15 through 20 in Luke chapter 14. In this passage, Jesus here is eating at a Pharisee's home. And the discussion breaks out. And Jesus responds with a parable. So, Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 20. It says, uh, When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus said to him, he says, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and and therefore I cannot come. So Jesus uses here a parable that describes how people substitute the blessings of the kingdom for the things of this world. And I believe that just like in this passage, many of us no longer yearn for Christ's return so much because we've replaced them with these things of the world. We've replaced God with lesser things. In his book, Hunger for God, John Piper says, Sometimes the greatest adversary of a God-centered life is not God's enemies, but is instead his gifts. 
So, our kids, our little league is gymnastics, uh, hobbies, cycling, hunting, tennis, music. You fill in the blank. Are all these things good gifts? Well, yeah, of course they are. But we must be very careful that our desire for God's gifts doesn't replace our desire to follow Jesus and to obey his commission for every believer. You see, when we desire something to the point that our hunger for Jesus' return wanes, then we have, in fact, created an idol. I want you to get this now. When your heart has an idol, it no longer yearns for Christ's return. It no longer has a hunger for Christ's return. What does an idolatrous heart contain? It contains a desire for more time with its idol, not for Christ's return. So Peter reminds us that the Christian perspective always has in view that this world and the gifts that it holds is very temporary. Therefore, for some of us, we have a a real issue with the desires of our hearts, with idolatry. However, some of us have lost an eager anticipation of Christ's return, and this is most tragic, I believe, because we have unknowingly created this crisis of priority that ends up leading to a lot of, a lot of suffering in our lives. Uh, let me explain what I mean. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And look at verse 19 through 21. This should be a very familiar passage for many of you, and it's often referred to as the treasure principle. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Verse 19, chapter 6 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And market corrections occur, right? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Look at verse 21. It says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or in the King James, it says, there will your heart also be. I want you to look closely there at verse 21. And I want you to notice the order there. This verse does not say that where your heart is focused, you will put your treasure there. That's not what it says. Instead, it says where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to follow. Let me clarify this distinction just for a second. Let's just say that one of the things you treasure is golf or fishing. And if it is, I'm, I apologize. I could put anything in the blank. This verse does not say that if your heart loves golfing or fishing, you will spend all your time playing golf or fishing. That, that may be true, but that's not what this verse says. No, what, what this verse says is that if you spend a lot of time golfing or fishing, your heart will treasure golf or fishing. This is, it's really an important distinction in how you understand this verse. What this verse tells us is that where you invest your treasure, and our treasure is our time, our money, and our talents, where you invest those things is where your heart's going to follow. So when it really comes down to the heart of the issue, this really is not a heart issue, but a day planner and a budget issue. You see, Jesus understood the human heart and its tendency toward idolatry when he said this. He says, so... If you're struggling right now, if you're struggling, you want to work for the kingdom. You want to do things for the kingdom. You want to be involved in the fight. You want to follow Jesus. And every time you do, it seems like something else 
goes awry or your heart is distracted in some other way. If that's happening, then what you need to do is start investing in the things of the kingdom. And when you do that, your heart's going to follow. Well, how do we do that? Let me, let me make it more clear. <clears throat> let me challenge you. Take a look at your schedule. Take a look at a typical week, okay? And, and when you look at your schedule... Maybe you take something out that you really enjoy but is optional and replace it with time in a men's or women's Bible study. Uh, Replace it with time in a life group or children's ministry, ministry or maybe even time where you're intentionally discipling someone else. You don't have to take anything out, really, except maybe less TV. The ideal here is just... You actively and intentionally put kingdom life endeavors into your schedule. If you do this, Scripture says your heart will follow. And very soon your desire for the things that you replace will begin to fade. Let me warn you, this is very, very dangerous in your life because when you get a taste for kingdom life, nothing else will do. And you just simply can't get enough. If you're not careful... Pretty soon, that interest or hobby or even that career that defines you becomes nothing more than tent-making so you can do the things where your heart now resides. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself living in eager anticipation of Christ's return. Well, you say, why does service for the kingdom or time spent in discipleship, why does that cultivate an eager anticipation for Christ's return? Turn with me to one more passage. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. And go down to verse 14. Matthew 25, verse 14. In this passage, Jesus is discussing his return in the previous verses, and then he gives this parable to illustrate how some will respond to his return and to the coming kingdom. So, Matthew uh, chapter 25, verse 14. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent, he went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more and saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, then came forward, saying, Master... I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground, and here you have what is yours. 
But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. Let me go just a little bit further to really get at what Jesus illustrates in this parable. When I was a kid... Sometimes my parents would give me a particular job or a chore to do that they would want to accomplish while they were gone. Now, one of the jobs that I actually liked was mowing the yard. So I remember on some occasions I would be given this assignment, and while my parents were away, though, some friends would show up. Or I would get distracted by something else, and then suddenly remember that my parents were coming home. Now, at that moment... When I realized my parents were going to be home soon and I had not done what I was supposed to do, at that moment, I was not living in eager anticipation of my parents' return. Why? Because I had not done what they had asked me to do. I was actually hoping that they would come home late so that I could hurry up and get busy at the last minute and get my chore done before they returned. But on other occasions, and my mom and dad are here so they can verify this, When given the task of mowing the yard, I would get really motivated, and I would mow the yard, and I would clean the flower beds. And then in a burst of of inspiration, I'd even wash the car. And I actually enjoyed doing the chores, every minute of it, because of this anticipation I had of what? I had this anticipation of how proud my parents were going to be when they returned home and saw what I had done. So I'm sure you can see where I'm going with the story in the context of Jesus' return. We are saved by grace, not by works. But because of our sure election and adoption into God's family, there is an expectation for every redeemed believer that we respond to the gospel by following Christ's commands. In in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, you can turn there. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. Paul speaks of how believers have been entrusted with the gospel. And he says in verse 4 there, he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We see this very same principle of Christ's investment of us in 2 Timothy 1, verse 14. So 2 Timothy uh, 1, 14. Paul says to Timothy, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Turn over one book to uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Paul charges Timothy by telling him to take the gospel that he has received and entrust it to other faithful men who will then entrust the gospel to others also. So you see... I did not want, <clears throat> I did not do what my parents asked me to do while they were away. When I did not do that, I was not eager for their return. I, I knew that as part of my family, I was expected to contribute sometimes by doing chores. And if I didn't do this, I was still part of my family. But my relationship with my parents was strained, and sometimes there are even consequences for disobedience. Likewise, in the body of Christ, if we do not obey, our fellowship with the Father can be strained and there can even be some painful consequences. 
Moreover, if as redeemed believers, if we are living in disobedience and we are consumed by worldly pursuits, then it's easy to see how we would not cultivate an eager anticipation for Christ's return. But if our heart is consumed by the things of the kingdom, and this is reflected in how we use our time and our treasure and our talent, we live actually looking forward to our Savior's return. So, as children of the King, if we are to cultivate in our heart an eager anticipation of Christ's return, we must be about following His command that is given to every believer. What is His command? Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. This is a passage that we all know is the Great Commission. This is a passage that was given just to missionaries, right? No. For every believer, the Great Commission says, verse 16, Jesus, after his resurrection, he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee and to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus says first here in this passage that he is in charge. He is Lord. And next he says, if you want to follow me, then do as I did and follow my command to make disciples. And finally, he says, as you follow me and you do what I have done and what I command, I'm going to be with you. And furthermore, I'm coming back. So in our passage from 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes to the church to remind them that Jesus is coming back and that until he does, the Great Commission still stands. Therefore... We as believers and collectively as the body of Christ should be working to fulfill the Great Commission, to be about making disciples. Then, when we invest ourselves in following Christ, when we follow Him in obedience, our heart will follow. And when our lives are lived out in following Jesus, then we have this deep desire for His return. A deep desire for His return is then cultivated in our hearts. And when that happens, it influences every aspect of our lives. Everything that Peter says in chapter 3 to the church should ring true for Tumble Bible Church as well. I believe that never before has a church in America been more in need of the reminders that Peter gave in these verses today. I believe that many churches in America have been overrun by people selling a false gospel and a false picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Many churches today are marketing a lie that says Christianity is simply a more effective method to achieve your worldly aspirations. As such, the Bible, it's been twisted and it's been reduced to nothing more than this conservative help man, help, self-help manual, I guess, designed to make you feel better about this idolatrous life that you're involved in. And it's no surprise that people are flocking to these churches by the thousands and even more tuning in to listen to their broadcasts to find out how they can better achieve quality time with their idols. In stark contrast, the Bible tells us that as God's church, we've been entrusted 
with the gospel. And the message of the church must be the same message that Jesus gave to his disciples. And this message is that God has called us to a way of life that is radically different from the one that you're living. And if you're a believer here this morning, you've been called to a life that is to be focused on making disciples while you eagerly await Christ's return. Your goal as a Christian is not to find some way of fitting Christ into this life that you have built, but it is instead to make following Christ the center of your life. So let's wrap up this morning's teaching. I want to return again to where we begin in Second Peter chapter 3. Peter writes this letter to a church that needs motivation and it needs encouragement while they follow Christ and obey the Great Commission. They need encouragement because what Jesus has asked them to do is completely contrary to the culture in which they live in. Not only that, it's completely contrary to what all the experts are saying that life is all about. And sometimes following Jesus and His commands is difficult. And so churches need encouragement. And so Peter does this in what you might think is an unusual way. He encourages the church by reminding them that the world's going to end and that Jesus is coming back. He reminds them that this world's end will be sudden and complete and those who have trusted Him will then be with Him in a new heaven and a new earth. This new heaven and earth will be fundamentally different. And in this new earth, righteousness is going to replace corruption as a way of life. But how does telling us that the world will end, how does that motivate us to follow Christ? Because just like a church in Second Peter, we need encouragement if we're going to obey the Great Commission. We need encouragement because in our own area and on our televisions, we see false prophets and churches that are twisting the gospel and perverting the gospel. And we see evil and selfish people every day defy God and grow richer. And that's discouraging. It's tiresome. And so we need encouragement. I believe that that guided by the Holy Spirit, Peter knew that both then and now we would need to be reminded so that we don't lose sight of God's end game. We need to be reminded that the pursuits of this life and the things of this world will one day be vapor. And therefore, this vapor, this future vapor, should never define us. It should never define who we are. Francis Chan, in his book uh, called Multiply, he says that the more we think about the end, the stronger and more effective we will be as Christians. Thinking about the end keeps us focused on the goal and reminds us that God has not finished working. And everything will be accomplished in God's perfect timing. Reminding us about the end clarifies our priorities and empowers us to continue the mission set before us. I had lunch with uh, Bob Savolka this week, as I often do. And, and uh, when I'm preaching or teaching, we'll often discuss the material. And this week we were talking about this sermon and the coming into the world and Christ's return and how we should react to that scripture. And Bob referenced an unusual thing, I thought, but he, he referenced First Chronicles chapter 12, uh, verse 32. And, and in this verse, uh, David, who's not yet king, has many supporters joining him. And, and the men of Issachar were joining him. And it says in verse 32 of First Chronicles chapter 12, it says that these men of Issachar, that they were men who had understanding of the times. 
the men at Issachar saw that David was to be the new king. Bob says, when I see this verse, he said, I think that we as a body should not be hung up on trivial matters, but instead be praying and working as men who understand the times. So I I pray for TBC that we would become a church that will pursue hard after the great great commission, that will pursue hard after making disciples. Because just like the church in 2 Peter and the men of Issachar, we understand the times in which we live. And as we pursue it hard, we eagerly await the imminent return of the King. So church, as we, as we close this teaching for this morning and the uh, worship team uh, comes forward, I stand before you this morning to remind you from the Scriptures that this world will come to an end and Jesus is coming back. Therefore, we should be about making disciples as we live in eager anticipation of Christ's return. I'm pouring my heart out before you on this topic this morning because church is not a game that we have invented for your entertainment. I believe that as a church, we are rapidly approaching a fork in the road where we can decide to really follow Christ and make disciples or we can decide to do anything else. And even when you describe anything else in spiritual words, it's still anything else. And I believe that what we decide will have eternal consequences and will echo throughout our community for generations until Christ comes. Therefore, we should be about making disciples as we live in eager anticipation of Christ's return that is most assuredly coming. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come before you this morning thanking you that according to your word that this, this world will end and that Jesus is coming back. Lord, we thank you for reminding us that as believers we have been entrusted with this precious gospel and that we've been called to make disciples. Lord, I, I just pray that as Christians we stop being fans of Christ and instead become followers of Christ. That we as a church would get out of the pews and into the game because it's, it's not about us. It's about Jesus and the gospel and the lost and dying world. And so, Lord, I just pray that you stir our hearts. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.